We're reading from Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 1 this morning, uh, and we're in some familiar passages as we uh, journey through Advent together. Uh, Luke chapter 1, reading from verses 26 to 38. Uh, There's there's Bibles in the the pews, for want of a better word there, and uh, if you bring one of those out, or yes, if you're using one of those, it's on page 1025 if you'd like to follow along. Uh, Otherwise, you might be on your whatever device you're you're following on, but we're reading from Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. And Luke, Dr. Luke records this for us. He says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So how will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Amen. Thanks, Gary. Never tire of those readings of the Christmas story. Um, and this whole thing worked out to do about the World Cup, and then after last night, I threw it out the window. I just decided not to. Oh, man, like, how disappointing. Anyway, we are where we are. We pray, and then move into some of the the thoughts, reflections, and teachings that I think are rising up from this text for us in this moment that we're in. Let's pray. Father, guard our minds, our hearts against daydreaming and wandering. Guard us against arrogance, assuming we have nothing more to learn from a story that is so familiar to us. And help us as we hear these words, as we encounter you afresh this morning in your words, to have lives that are completely surrendered to you, as Mary's was when she said, may it be for me as the Lord has said. So speak, Lord. You have our ear, you have our minds, you have our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I know where a bunch of you were last night in terms of watching the match, 
but where were you on Thursday night? Were any of you glued to Netflix watching Harry and Meghan drop? No, no, no. Here's what's happened across this congregation, I guarantee you. Some of you are full of rage about this thing. You're going like, that is disgraceful. And you're moaning and ranting to anybody who'll listen to you. Some of you are full of compassion. You're glued to it. You're going, that is such a sad, I can't believe they were asked to endure that. Some of you are filled with ambivalence. You're like, yeah, yeah, they're just making money off them. Yeah, don't care. And then some of you are, are just feeding off the bones of it, watching it, consuming it, gossiping about it, talking about it, or not watching it, but reading every paper and listening to every news report about it and consuming it that way indirectly and forming your opinion off it through other people's. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting how a documentary put out on Netflix by a couple who now live in America has captured the world's attention, whether you like it or not. And I'm not making any moral comment on it. Just as a social experiment, it's fascinating to see people's response to it. The one thing I do want to say, though, is it's amazing how much we are formed by our experience of family. And that part, none of you can deny. It's amazing how influential our family environment is on the adults we become or the adults we're becoming. And I share that with you because this story about the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, at its very heart is a story about family. The most remarkable story 2,000 years ago, the first Christmas in Palestine, in a little place that most of the world hadn't heard of, wasn't paying attention to, a young couple who were betrothed to each other, they were engaged to be married, and there's a whole complexity around that. An angel comes to Mary, who's not yet living with Joseph. They haven't yet consummated their marriage. It's an arranged marriage by family. They then go through a kind of legal um, betrothal, engagement type ceremony, and then they stay in their family homes until they come to a certain age and stage when they come together and consummate their marriage. They're at stage two of that. They're betrothed but not yet living together. And the angel comes to Mary, who's a virgin, literally, and says to her that God has chosen her for the most remarkable role of any woman in human history, that she is going to give birth to a baby boy. She's going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, give birth to a, a baby boy. And that child is going to be the Messiah that Israel and by default the world has been waiting for. And it's remarkable that God, who creates all of this, who exists outside of time, chooses to come into history and into the world and presents himself amongst us through the experience of family. Through the experience of family. And the thing I want to say this morning is that, is that family 
which is sometimes dysfunctional and sometimes life-giving and sometimes horrendous and sometimes amazing. Family is key to the story that God is telling in the world that we live in today. As his kingdom comes, as his will is done, family is key. If we have time, I want to say three things this morning. The first one I want to start, imagine jumping out of an airplane uh, and parachuting down into where you're going to land. We're going to start at 10,000 feet. We're going to parachute into the story. And finally, we're going to land right in some specifics in the story. Are you with me? So we're starting at 10,000 feet. Hold on. Everyone wearing the parachute? You good? Okay. Um, first thing I want to say is family as a picture of the church. We have nine new members coming into our church family here in Orangefield. On Monday night, part of our practice in receiving new members is we invite them to come for a meal that our elders and our staff gather with them and we share stories, we get to know each other, we pray for one another. It's a wonderful experience. And as part of it, one of our elders said something. They said, I love Orangefield. Orangefield is my family. You know, I came from down country. My husband came from down country. And we, we ended up in Orangefield. And Orangefield has become the people that we love. It has become the people we, we go to for help and support. The people we love to help and support. Orangefield is family in a very real and literal sense. Orangefield is family. And, and I, I said it earlier in the service. I want to say it again. No matter how you walk in through these doors... Whether you walk in with a biological family that stretches a whole pew of seats or you walk in on your own, when you come into this church, you are amongst family, your spiritual family. This place is family. You see, God exists himself as family, Father, Son, and Spirit exist together in perfect unity, a family unit, if you like. We see it at creation. We see Elohim. We see the, Spirit, the Father. We see the Spirit hovering over the water. When John talks about the creation story, he says, in the beginning was the Word who was Jesus, Father, Son, Spirit, all present at the creation, at the very start of the Old Testament. Go to the very start of the New Testament, you see the baptism of Jesus. As Jesus comes up out of the water, the Son is present. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my Son whom I love. And the Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. Right throughout the Bible, we see this picture of God as family, as Trinity coming together. And right at the start of the Bible story, in the creation where, where God creates Adam and Eve, man and woman, humanity, God is creating a family for himself, a people for his presence and his love and his purpose to dwell amongst and ripple out through. God creates humanity because he wants to love people. He wants to share his love with them. He's creating family. And as you read through the story of Genesis, you see um, sin coming into the world and that picture of, of family and that picture of intimacy with God being broken. And then you read on through Genesis, you see Abraham and his family and God lay his hands on this Old Testament hero of Abraham and Sarah and said to them, okay, in your biological family, I am going to create family. You are going to be my people. 
I am going to be your God. And through your biological family, I am going to redeem all the earth and all the creation. God creating family for himself. God creating family for himself. And then you come to the start of the Gospels and Jesus, the Son of God, chooses to incarnate himself amongst us in family, in family. And the very purpose of his incarnation, his birth, and then his life, and his death, and his resurrection, is that we might get to become part of God's family. You see, John, when he writes his gospel, he says at the very start of it in John 1, verse 12, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right for them to become children of God. And that's a verse we sometimes miss, we sometimes forget about, because I hear Christians, I hear people in Northern Ireland talk about, actually, they're all God's children. Talking about all the kids running about, they're all God's children. Which sounds lovely, but it's not literally what the Bible says. Well, what the Bible says is that all people and all children are created by God, all are loved by God, But children of God in the Old Testament and New Testament is a term reserved for people who have trusted God, received him, and are following him. We would say for Christians. John says to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right for them to become children of God. We become children of God when we recognize that our lives are broken and sinful and we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. His work on the cross that started in the manger is fundamentally about us becoming part of God's family. And until you receive him as Lord and Savior, you are not part of that family. You're still living in the reality of your sin. You're still living with the reality of a lost eternity. Eternal life without God, without heaven. But as children of God, we get the full benefits of our Father. We get to be called children of God now and for eternity. And if you've never receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Do not leave this place this morning without allowing yourself to become a child of God, please. Family is so important to God. Jesus, when he teaches disciples to pray, he he says to them, pray, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, Daddy, God. If that's how Jesus says, when you think about God, I want you to think through the lens of family and through the lens of Father. If your picture of God is something different than a parent who loves and cares for you and wants what's best for you and has given everything of themselves for you, if your picture of God is not that, you need to go back to the Bible and relook at who God is. Jesus says God is first and foremost Abba, Father, a parent, a loving parent. 
And so Jesus chooses to come incarnate in family as family because he wants to create family and that family is called the church. It's one of Paul's favorite metaphors for it. And it's less about biology and more about spiritual intent. I had coffee with some ladies in our church last week, older ladies uh, who I really look up to. Um, Some of them had lost their husbands in recent years. And I had this sense as I sat and listened to their story and heard them talk about grief and what it was like to walk with that grief. These ladies loved each other like sisters. They were family together. They weren't just strangers that came together for an hour on a Sunday because they liked Orangefield. They were family together. It's not what Jesus meant when he said, these are my brothers, these are my sisters, the people of God, family. We were down in Helen's Bay yesterday um, to baptize two of our young people um, who hadn't been baptized as infants and needed baptized before they came into full membership of the church. And there were loads of adults there. There was a few people from their biological family, but there was loads of adults from this church there as well. Spiritual mothers to these teenagers, spiritual fathers to these teenagers, you guys who had been walking with them and praying for them and loving them. Doesn't Paul say to Timothy, your spiritual father? Who are you spiritually parenting praying for, loving, investing in, championing, raising up. Because church is family. Church is family. That's what we see when we look at this gospel story. So that's the 10,000 feet. Let's come in a little bit. God's purpose in family. The angel, you still with me? You tracking? Yeah, nobody's fallen asleep yet. Pass some sweets around. Nudge somebody who's snoring. There we go. All good. God's purpose and family. The angel appears to Mary, betrothed but not yet married, a virgin but finds herself pregnant, to tell her that she is chosen to give birth to the Messiah, the miraculous conception. She knows this isn't normal. She gets how biology works. Women get how biology works. She knows this isn't normal, but she has chosen to give birth through this miracle to the Messiah And not just give birth to, but to be mother to. There's a difference in giving birth to someone and then sticking around and raising that child as well. Mary's not just the biological mom. She is the mother to Jesus in every sense in that she is the one that wipes his cut knee and feeds him at her breast and talks to him and brings him along to the synagogue. And all of those things, tucks him into bed at night, listens to his worries, his concerns, his fears. Mary is not just the birth mother, but is the mother in every sense to Jesus. The angel gives her these words, this prophetic promise, and she says, may it be to me as you have said. Complete surrender to God's purpose for her life. And she becomes the mother to Jesus. Parents have a huge influence, don't they? I said that at the start with the Harry and Meghan thing. Parents have a huge influence on the lives of their kids, for better or for worse. 
Jesus was born into family. Mary and Joseph were the, the mother and father who raised him into adulthood. And we see stuff at the birth and then around 12 years old, that significant ceremony for any young Jewish boy. And then nothing else till he's 30. We don't get any more until he's 30. Wouldn't you love to know what life was like in that home? Here's a question for you over dinner today. Would Jesus have turned out differently if he had different parents? I got no answers. I just thought the question was really interesting. If he's fully divine and fully human and he has parents raising him, certainly in his humanity, would he have turned out differently if he had different parents, different influence on his life? Here's another question for you. Were Mary and Joseph better parents because Jesus, let's be honest, he wasn't a normal kid, because Jesus was present in their home? How important is it for us to have Jesus present in our home as we raise our kids? It's interesting. How was your experience of family growing up? What from your parents do you want to emulate? Do you look back on now as an adult and go, oh man, I don't think I really appreciated what my parents did, what they sacrificed, the, the investment they made in me? I look back, I don't remember my dad ever really teaching me about kindness. And yet when I looked at his life, he was the kindest person I, I, I know. He was always willing to lay down what he was doing to help a neighbor, help a friend, even help a stranger. I think that's probably one of the most influential things I caught off him. What do you want to emulate of your parents? But equally, what from your parents messed you up? They weren't perfect. Let's not pretend they were. There's things they did, things they said that had an impact on you as a kid that you've carried into adult, adulthood that have messed up your perceptions, your relational ability, your emotions, your thought patterns, something. Rather than blaming them for that, have you ever led that stuff at the foot of the cross? If there's stuff you're carrying from your parents, is there space to forgive them? That doesn't always mean reconciliation. So it doesn't. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But what does it look like to take the stuff that your parents got wrong and leave it at the foot of the cross and say, God, I've carried it this far with me, but no further? The Bible says loads about Christian parenting because the home is the primary place where kids are to be discipled. You know, Nicola's great. We love Nicola. We love our volunteers here at church. We love sending the kids out to salt and light, don't we? Because you can stop worrying about the noises they make and you can actually concentrate on the service. You with me? And we love to do that for you as a church. We want to prioritize that and invest in our kids in youth ministry. But... The home is the primary place your kids are going to grow in their faith. And the Bible says loads about it. You know, they actually made it into the top 10, God's top 10. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you in the land. 
There's something about doing family life well and the city flourishing as a result of that. I don't want to major on that because it would, it's probably more beneficial to talk with the kids about honoring your father and mother. Let's jump into the New Testament to Ephesians 6 verse 4. The apostle Paul says, fathers, do not exasperate or it can be translated, do not be harsh with your children. Instead, bring them up in the teaching and instruction, the training and instruction of the Lord. Let's linger here for a second because there's lots of parents and there's lots of grandparents. There's lots of aunts and uncles who are hands-on with kids. Let's linger in this for a second. Do not exasperate your kids. Do not be harsh with your kids. It's not about not disciplining them. We, of course, we have to discipline our kids. Don't beat them, but discipline them. But do not exasperate them. Do not be harsh with them. I was thinking about this and thinking through, I guess, my own experience we live in a culture of hyper-individualism. There's always been individualism, but it's, it's become more and more. You do you. You be whatever you want to be, and we drink that Kool-Aid ourselves. And that is feeding into entitlement right across society, and also in the home as well. And you don't actually think it and you'd be horrified to speak it out loud. But often we exist with a mindset that I'm at the center of my own universe and what I think is right and what I want to do is the most important thing to do. And so your kid comes in to show you something. Do you ever say, just wait a minute, mommy's in the middle of something, daddy's in the middle of something? I do it all the time. And I've been sitting with this thinking, how much of that is appropriate to teach them to wait their turn and not interrupt and not let them become the center of everything because they're not either, Jesus is. But how much of that is just good old-fashioned, arrogant entitlement, thinking my thing's more important than their thing? Do not be harsh with your children. Do not exasperate them but bring them up in the teaching and instruction of the Lord. I, I remember my parents bringing me to church. I remember them teaching me things about morality and about the Bible, but, but probably the biggest lesson I got from my mom in terms of my faith was watching her in the mornings read her Bible. Her, her, her Bible sat in our living room beside where the TV remote control was, and she'd come in and sit down and wouldn't lift the TV. She'd lift the Bible with her Bible reading notes, and she never said to me, you need to do this. I think I caught it off her by osmosis, just by watching it be absorbed into me. How active, if you're a parent this morning, not everybody's a parent, but if you're a parent this morning, how active are you in the intentional discipleship of your kids? Do you pray with them at night if they're younger? Do you look at the salt take-home sheet that's given out? You know, they all bring a, a worksheet home that tells you what they've been doing. Do you chat about that with them? If they're a bit older, do you encourage them to do their own quiet times? Do you give them Bible reading notes? Do you ask them what they've been learning about in light and sniff? Are your kids seeing you prioritize Jesus in your home? 
where they look back in 20 years' time and reflect, you know, my parents didn't get everything right, but, but I know they love Jesus. It's not too late. Finally, quickly, before we move to communion, families don't always look like what you think. Families don't always look like what you think. Mary's conception was miraculous. We, we, we don't see that, so we don't. In any other place in the Bible, just there. It was that kind of one-time miracle. Elizabeth's story, Mary's cousin. She had infertility problems. She couldn't have kids of her own with her husband. And yet God healed her and she was able to have a child, John the Baptist. We see that miracle at different times in the Bible. We see it with Sarah, Abraham's wife. We see it with Hannah. We see it in other places. We've had friends who struggled with infertility and we had the opportunity to pray with them and they became pregnant very quickly after that. We have lots of families around church where infertility is a real heartbreak and a real struggle. We've been praying with you, we've been praying for you, as if yet maybe we haven't seen answer to those prayers, but we will continue to pray for you, I promise that. Also in the Christmas story, we have Anna, this older lady who um, was married for seven years. Her husband died. She became a widow. She gave her whole life to God working at the temple, believing that she was going to meet the Messiah. She never had kids of her own because sometimes that is the reality of family. She never had kids of her own. And yet towards the end of her life, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus came along and she got to meet him and hold him and become a spiritual mother to him and, and speak over him and pray over him and over their family and affirm what God was doing in their lives. Because sometimes in the church, people don't have children of their own, but they are invited to become spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers to other kids as well. I share these with you because, because families look different. Not every family looks the same. Mary was Jesus' biological father, but when you go to Matthew chapter one, Joseph wasn't the biological father. I said mother or father there. Mary's the biological mother. Let's just check that. But when you go to Matthew chapter one, Joseph is not the biological father. And the angel comes and says, your fiance is pregnant. Mary knows it's not Joseph's. She knows she's still a virgin. She knows this is something God has done. Joseph knows it's not his. That's the only thing he's certain of. He has to trust the words of the angel that this has happened by God and not by something else. And then make an active choice to say, I'm not the biological father, but I'm going to stick around and be the dad. I'm going to be the foster dad, the adoptive dad to Jesus. What would Jesus' life have been like if Joseph had said no? What would have happened then? 
And so I want to land all of this with a little video. You've ever seen this before. It's one of the most beautiful videos I've seen over Christmas. Um, the John Lewis advert. Other um, shopping departments are available, I should say. But let me just play this as we think about Joseph being in a foster adoptive dad to Jesus. Not everybody's experience of family looks the same. As the UK stop, but in Northern Ireland, there are over 3,000 children in the care system who are deemed looked after and need a foster placement. I just wonder. I don't see any angels in the place this morning. But I just wonder, might God be knocking on the door of your heart and asking you whether as a grandparent or as someone in their 20s or something in between to consider making space in your home to be a foster parent, to do respite fostering, to support somebody who is doing fostering and to make the decision that Joseph made to bring a child into your life and into your family that doesn't share the same genes as you and to see what God does in the midst. There's been so much touched on this morning in terms of an invitation to follow Jesus through to the successes and the, the brokenness and the failures of our own experience of family, both of our parents and of ourselves, to the griefs that family can bring, to the opportunities family can bring, the disappointments, the excitements. And yet what strikes me as I read through the Christmas story in the midst of all of these people's stories. It's a story of Emmanuel, of God coming and presencing himself amongst people who have different experiences of family and saying, I am with you. And I look around this church and I've been pastor here for four and a half years. I know some of your stories really well. I know some of your stories a tiny bit. There's maybe a few I don't know very much about your story. But this I can assure you, this Christmas, Emmanuel, God is with you. And whatever your experience of family and whatever your experience of pain, whatever your experience of joy God is with you. We're going to pause for a second before we come to take communion. I want to give you space to respond to whatever it is God might be saying to you or stirring within you this morning. How might he be asking you to respond to him? Can you say what Mary said? God, may it be unto me as you have said. God, we see Emmanuel 
God with us in this first Christmas story, our lives are every bit as complex and at times painful. And so we pray, Emmanuel, come and be with us this Christmas in whatever our experience of family has been, is, and will be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.